0: Well, if you've journeyed with us through Holy Week, we started last Sunday. We were on Palm Sunday and we, you know, talked about, you know, Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we celebrated that with Hosanna, the word Hosanna, which means save us. And the people cried Hosanna to the king and they proclaimed him and he entered into Jerusalem. And then as we know, the the story goes that by Thursday he was um, having the Last Supper and going into that room with his disciples and breaking bread and sharing with them the picture of communion, the, the, uh, you know, the Eucharist. And then uh, he was up all night and he went into Good Friday, which is the day that um, we remember or celebrate is probably too strong a word. But we remember his death and we think upon his suffering. And if you, if you joined with us, so we went as the Church of Maple Ridge Pit Meadows to five different locations Around town, and we gathered together as the church to remember and think about that together. And so, um, hopefully, you're able to join in that somewhere um, in this, one of those locations. And then we had Saturday, which my kids started calling or Day. It's the Saturday day. Saddest day. Saturday. Anyway, it was a weird family thing we started doing just this year. And uh, it's this. It's a sad day. It's the day between, right? And then this morning is this beautiful, glorious sunshine day where we get to celebrate his resurrection. Now, um, the eyewitness stories of, of these people who, you know, is that, is these women who actually came to the, to the tomb this morning. They came to the grave and they were, you know, they came in sadness because they thought Jesus was dead, They'd watched him die. They saw him suffer. They saw him endure the cross. And they watched him die. And the spear pierce his side. And so when they come to the tomb, they're coming grieving and weeping. And they're bringing spices to anoint his body. Because that's what they would do. And they weren't allowed to do it over the Sabbath, the Saturday. And so they came on the next day to do this. And I don't know what they were thinking in terms of coming and the soldiers were going to be there and the stone was there. I don't know how they were picturing that was going to go, but they came. And then I can only imagine their, their utter frustration as they get there and the tomb is empty and the soldiers are gone and they don't know what's happened. And they say things like, where is he? Where's his body? Mary says to the guy she thinks is the gardener, what have they done with him? Where's this body? And then she realizes it's Jesus. And she's filled with joy. She actually wants to grab hold of him and cling to him. And he says, no, 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 no. I got to go. Yeah, I'm not staying right now. And then there's another story of, of two disciples who are leaving Jerusalem. They're on the road to Emmaus and they're walking along and they're so distraught and they end up with this guy and they're talking and sharing and he doesn't seem to know anything that's going on. And they say, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't, hasn't heard what's going on? How can you not have heard about Jesus? And they start talking and then this guy starts explaining things. And as they walk, their hearts begin to burn within them. And then they get to this room and, he breaks the bread, and it's Jesus. And they say, oh, oh, that's why our hearts were burning. We were with Jesus. And then they run back to tell the others, just like the women did, running back to tell people because joy filled their hearts. The resurrection changes everything from Friday to Sunday. Everything changes. But my question was, How does that impact my day-to-day? Does the resurrection change my day-to-day? I know it changed their day-to-day, but, you know, it's a a story. It's a good story. But does it change my life and my moment-to-moment? Does it change where I live and learn and work and play? Does it change my experience of God and my experience of the world? Let's read. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 15, it says... That it does. This is what it says. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells, lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And maybe you're like, okay, that was a lot of weird stuff. You talked about circumcision. You talked about, why did you pick this passage? You'll find out. It's a good one. And my big idea this morning is because Jesus rose, we can experience all of God. Because Jesus rose, we can experience all of God. We are fully filled. Fully filled. Now, I don't always feel filled. Actually, there's a lot of times I don't feel filled. And a lot of times I don't feel full. I, there's a lot of times, like, for example, when things go wrong. Like this week, the car battery was dying, it almost died. It was right there. And I felt things rise up in me that told me that I wasn't feeling full. In that moment when I needed to go in the car, or uh, when the basement floods and the most, it didn't just flood, but the most recent time that it did flood our basement, it was my fault actually, because I put something in the utility sink and plugged the sink and then I kept the water running and then I got distracted and the water started pouring over the side of the utility sink and flooding the basement. In that moment, the sink was full, but my heart was not full. It was not feeling full at all. Or, you know, I missed something. I, I put it off. Like I, another example. I have lots of examples of these. But um, was recently, the yard was all cleaned up and all like eight bags of landscape, st- landscape stuff in landscape bags. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome. This is great. And then I put off cleaning it up. And then it rained. And then I went to move the landscape bag and everything fell out the bottom. Those moments... I might have been saying things that were not full of the Lord. I make mistakes. I choose badly. I get angry. I get tired and I lose it. And in those moments, my emptiness is evident. And I feel like it's very true that I'm a sinner, not a saint. That's what I would say. If you asked me, I'm a sinner, not a saint. But is that true? Is that true? Paul says this in verse 10 in Christ, in Christ, You have been brought to fullness. In Christ, you've been brought to fullness. The Bible says that I have been brought to fullness. What fullness is he talking about? Well, in John chapter one, he says, out of his fullness, we have received grace in place of grace already given. And Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter three says that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The fullness we're talking about is all the fullness of God. Out of his fullness, I am filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's crazy. That's crazy. Do you you read that? All the fullness of God. The NASV says the, the word filled there, they change it to made complete instead of fullness. It's made complete. And that's the picture of that word Jesus uses a lot when he says, your faith has saved you. You've, got, you've been healed. Your faith has healed you. And he keeps using these words. And the word in the Greek, if you keep coming back to it, is sozo. It's this word that means whole. It's not just your withered hand. It's, just, it's not just that you've had your demons cast out. It's not just that your sins were forgiven. It's all of these things. It's a picture of wholeness that Jesus makes me whole. I'm no longer numb and empty and broken and broken and fearful and anxious i am whole in jesus you say really is that possible is it true it's possible because jesus is filled to the fullness of god that's what it says colossians chapter 1 says for god was pleased to have all his fullness that's my underline god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is filled with all the fullness of God. Like, Picture all the fullness of the deity. When you picture God Almighty, Yahweh, the creator, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere God, who made everything, Jesus is filled with All the fullness of God. And Jesus uses his fullness to accomplish the mission of God, which is to reconcile all things to himself. Things like me and things like you. And the discussion of fullness flows into authority. That's what we go right from, from fullness into authority. And the scene that I think of is a scene in a movie, a wider movie where um, Wyatt Earp leaves behind his law keeping and he decides he's going to become a businessman. He's not going to be a sheriff anymore or a marshal. And so he goes and he he gets with his brothers and they're going to do investment. And so he goes to a new town and he leaves behind his badge and his gun and he goes to this town and he goes and he looks and looking around, he's like, maybe I'll invest in a saloon. And so he goes into one of the saloons and in this particular saloon, it's almost empty. There's just one guy in the corner and a piano player and the barkeeper. And so White goes up to the counter and he's like, why is it so dead in here? And the guy's like, I can't get rid of that guy over there. And he keeps chasing everyone out. He's a bully. And so White like, hmm, okay. And so he sits at the counter and then the guy comes over and he's like, I don't like how you're looking at me. And White like, well, I don't want any trouble. And the guy's like, well, I don't like, you better leave. I don't like how you're looking at me. I got this gun here. You don't, you don't got a gun. And then White stands up and looks at him and is like, okay, you going to use that gun? And the guy's like, yeah, I might, I might use that gun. Hey, you talk pretty big for a guy with no gun. And then he pulls out his gun and he's like, I could just shoot you, man. And White Earp's like, okay, go ahead, throw down. And he just looks him right in the eye. He's like, throw down. Throw down, boy. And the guy's like, um, um. And then White Earp takes the guy's gun away from him and bonks him on the head. It's, it's an awesome scene. If you like Westerns and some measure of bonking. And I love it. You know what? Mark eleven twenty eight 28 feels like this to me. People said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave this authority to you to do this? It's like Jesus comes to town and he's got no badge and he's got no gun. He just walks into town and when he looks people in the eye, they back down because Jesus has the authority. He has the authority from the fullness of God. And then what happens when Jesus rises, Ephesians chapter one, God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he gets his badge and he gets his gun. And now he's the sheriff the new sheriff in town and guess what that makes us as a part of it we're the deputies we join with Jesus in his authority and his fullness that he's got all the authority that he has we have access to Jesus says this in Matthew 28 he came to his disciples and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father And the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that I get to walk around and bully people with my badge, because I'm the deputy, or you get to bully people with our new authority. What it means, the better picture, and I heard this illustration from Norm at Westside, he said, um, it's like this, and I have a family too, so this happens a lot, that I would send Elijah, my 10 year old, to go tell Maddie, our 13 year old, that it's time to do the dishes. So every night, something like this happens. Can you go get Maddie? And Elijah would run upstairs, knock on her door, and he'd say, hey, Maddie, it's time to do the dishes. Now, Maddie has the choice. She can say, I'm not listening to you. I don't have to obey you. But who is she obeying when she says that or doesn't say that? The next thing Elijah will say is, dad told me to say you're supposed to come downstairs. Does Elijah care? He's like, you can listen or not listen. I'm just telling you what dad said. And we have the same thing when our authority is that we're just saying what dad said. We just, we use the name of Jesus because Jesus has all authority. We say, Jesus, it's in your name. You told us to go and do this. You told us to go and say this. You told us to pray this way. So the power that we access, the authority we access is from Jesus. It's not our own. We live in that authority as we bring the kingdom to the places where we live and learn and work and play. That's the kingdom that's coming. We live in all the fullness of God because we live in Christ. So we're fully filled and we're fully marked. When Jesus appears to his disciples after he's been raised from the dead, um, he, he appears to them and then he'll do things like he eats food to show them he's not a ghost, that he's actually raised from the dead. And he does other things like he lets them touch the holes in his hands. And the holes in his side. And there's one particular disciple named Thomas who says, you know, he isn't there when Jesus appears and then he isn't there again. And he says, oh, like, I can't believe it. And people say, no, we saw him. We touched him. And, you know, and Thomas says, well, I can't believe it until I see him. And I touch him. I need to touch the holes in his hands. And then I'll believe that he's been raised from the dead. Because I watched him die. So this is hard to believe. And then he's in the room the next time, and Jesus comes. And I just picture everyone runs. Oh, Jesus, you're here, you're here. And then Jesus walks through them, and he walks over to Thomas, and he says, Thomas, go ahead. Put your hand in the hole. And Thomas does, and then he shows him his side. See, this is where I was pierced. You feel? I'm I'm here. And Thomas says, I believe. And Jesus says, well, bless you, you know, that you get to touch me. There's lots of people who will have to choose to believe without touching the holes in my hands. And the question for me is, you know, I don't know if you feel like it's a bit weird, but I feel like if I died and got a new body, I would pick one without holes in it or scars on it. Look, if I'm going to get a perfect body, man, I want to pick the best one possible. Do we get to choose or, you know, I'll take the one that's got nothing wrong with it. Jesus comes back and he's got holes in his hands. And a hole in his side. He's got scars and marks. If Jesus has been marked by his death, then I would like to put to you that we are also marked by his death. Paul interrupts the beautiful discussion of the fullness. You are filled with the fullness. And he goes into this thing about circumcision. You are like, what? Why did you start talking about circumcision? This was a great verse. We could quote it a lot, except for you started talking about Circumcision. We just had this discussion at our dinner table recently, after dinner. It's like the after dinner discussions at our house. Oh, man. And it got into, what, circumcision? We were all talking about this. You should have seen my kids' faces who've heard about this, and suddenly they're like, oh, I'm putting it together now. <laughs> Whoa, are you, are you serious? Circumcision was the mark of the follower. And it goes back to Genesis. Abraham's told by God, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then all throughout the Bible, the Jews are reminded over and over and over not to see circumcision as just a religious formality. Oh yeah, I did that, so I'm good. No, because it's not just a thing you do. It is an an outward sign of the inward heart. It's an outward sign of the inward heart that I belong to God. That's what it was meant to be. And Paul says, every believer is marked like this through the death of Jesus. You say, what? When was I marked? What does that mean? I'm marked? Paul says, it's in baptism. We get marked because the picture is the same picture. It's an outward sign of the inward heart. I've given my life to God. And then I go down into the waters of baptism. I go down into his death, and then I'm raised up out of the water as he's raised up into life. That's the picture of baptism. It's a non-visible, visible mark. Now, what does this mean for us, for you and me? How does this change my daily life, that I'm marked by this? I heard a story recently of a, an old lady who was in downtown Vancouver, and she came out of the store, and she walked out just to see a policeman ticketing the car. And so she walked over and she said, Hey officer, how about you know giving an old lady a break? And he was like, No way. He's writing the ticket. And then she was like, You pompous jerk. And then he looks at her and he's like, Well, you know what else? I see these tires are a little bald too. So he starts writing a second ticket. And then she's like, donut eating Gestapo. And she starts saying these things under her breath. And then he, so he starts writing more tickets and the more she abuses him and calls him names, the more tickets he writes and he keeps slapping them down. And finally someone walks over to this lady and he's like, lady, lady, you, you need to stop. I mean, this is, this is bad. She says, oh, I don't even care. I came down here on the bus. And this is the picture. I have sold, I've left my morality car, sold it. I'm done with it. And I'm taking the grace bus. I'm now on the gospel bus. That's the bus. That's how I travel. And when I see the law laying out the tickets, I laugh. I say, I don't even own a car anymore. This isn't, this isn't my thing. You could take it all you want. I'm I'm on the grace bus. I'm riding the bus now, and it's totally different. It's changed everything. Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says this, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I only picked a few. There's tons of these verses. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This, may, this has implications for transformation for us. It means that old way, the old life is gone and dead. I heard this story of a, a guy in 2002. This is not a funny story, but... In 2002, his name's John Darwin, and he lives in England, um, in Durham. And he was reported missing by his wife. He went canoeing in the North Sea. And after a a number of days or weeks of searching, uh, he never turned up. And they never found his body, and so they declared him dead. And she got the insurance, 250,000 pounds, and continued to live in her home. And at some point years later, it came out that he was living next door. He was still alive. He'd faked his death and she'd actually been part of it. And they quickly moved to Panama and they tried to get away by moving there and living there and it didn't work. And so, you know, they got ca- caught and charged with fraud. You are know, like, this is a horrible story. Why are you telling us this story? The point is this. I was thinking about this. If we die, our old life is gone. When Mr. Darwin died, and then he came back to shore, and he started walking around, his old life was gone. He can't die and then go back into his old life. He can't just go back to his house and start living in his house again. Hey, no problem. Yeah, we got this insurance money. Yeah, I'm dead. Don't worry about it. No. His life is forever transformed. And actually, (laughs) they regretted it. And she shared Her remorse over their choice to do this. But when you die, your old life is gone. It's not there anymore. Second Corinthians says, Therefore, if any is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. C.S. Lewis has a more positive picture for us. And the picture is, he says, if we had this horse and we said, this isn't now a Christian horse, it's been transformed, he said, it's not like it's just a horse. The Christian horse would be a horse that grows wings. And now it's not a, actually a horse anymore. And the, this new thing, we would call it a new creation. A Pegasus is the word for a flying horse, right? This new creature would soar over fences the old horse would only dream about. It's not that we're teaching the horse, oh, just jump better. It's that the horse has become a new creature and it flies and it soars. That's the picture of transformation. The death and the resurrection of Jesus mark us. And we're changed. Thirdly, we're fully alive. We're fully filled, we're fully marked, and we're fully alive. Many years ago, I went to a a memorial service uh, at a United Church. And I sat there and the minister was sharing, and it was not a Christian service. I mean, the, the person who died wasn't a Christian And uh, the minister was talking about how we that person lives on in our hearts. That's how they live on. And then the minister started talking about that's how Jesus rose from the dead. That's how Jesus lived on was by living on in our hearts and in the hearts of the disciples who remembered Jesus. And they wrote about Jesus. And that's how Jesus rose from the dead. And I sat there and I was actually angry that a person in a church would stand up at the front and say that Jesus hadn't physically risen from the dead. And the reason is because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this is all meaningless. That's why the Pharisees and those guys were trying to discount the resurrection right away. That's why they went after it so hard because they wanted people to say, no, Jesus didn't rise and then it wouldn't matter. That's why they dragged the disciples to torture and to death saying, just recant, just say that Jesus didn't rise, and this will all be okay. It'll all go away. And they wouldn't, because they saw him alive. The point is that if Jesus didn't rise, this is all for nothing. Romans 6, verse 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can live a new life. Just like Jesus rose, That's the same way we get a new life. So if Jesus didn't really rise, we're not really getting a new life. This is just kind of, we're just talking. There are some outcomes, some things that change in our lives because Jesus rose from the dead. The first one is that we get Jesus' seat. We get his seat. We died with Christ, we rise with Christ, and we sit with Christ. That's the picture. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when you think about heaven and you picture heaven and you picture all the things happening in heaven, picture the mountains, running around on the mountains, you picture God on the throne, you picture people worshiping. I don't know what you picture heaven to be like, but you can picture any of those things. And the question is, where are you in the picture? And one of the places you could be, this says, is that you would be seated with Jesus at the right hand of God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So according to God's word, we are not groveling at the throne. We're not trying to earn God's approval or his good favor. We're not trying to be good to be qualified. We're sitting. We're sitting with Jesus. We're raised with Jesus and we're seated with Jesus. Wearing his righteousness, marked by his death, transformed by his righteousness. We're alive, we're forgiven, our debt's been canceled, and we're no longer legally condemned. If you picture when the enemy would come in and accuse and condemn, where are we? If that was a courtroom, where would we be? Jonathan did this, and Jonathan did that, and Jonathan did this. In that picture, I'm sitting by the judge. I'm like, yeah, this is hilarious. Yeah, no, I'm not down there. I'm up here. Yeah, okay, yeah, Cues away. I'm with Jesus. That's the picture. The second outcome is that we have Jesus' power. We're seated with Jesus, and we have Jesus' power. We died with Christ, we rise with Christ, and we experience his resurrection power. Ephesians says, And his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength when he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. The Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available for you and for me. I walked by a sign recently. It was like the lotto sign. so It's got the millions on it, whatever millions the lottery is right now. And then on the very top of the sign, there was a thing that said, um, win $1,000 a day for your for a lifetime or something. And I walked by it, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what I'd take. I'd take the millions, or would I take $1,000 a day? And I was like, how much is $1,000 a day? I was like, well, that would be like 30-something thousand a month. If it was 30 days, 30,000. 30, well, that's, that'd be awesome. And then I was thinking, for in a year, how much is that? Oh, that's 365000 a thousand a day. And I was like, oh, that's not very much. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, you know what the cool part about that picture is, is that every day— No matter what you spent or what you didn't spend, the next day you get another thousand. And the next day you get another thousand. And the next day you get another thousand. And it's the same picture for us and the resurrection power of Jesus. We live like paupers. We walk around, oh yeah, so empty, it's so hard, is so difficult. And Jesus says, every day, You have the resurrection power of Jesus available to you. You can be filled with his resurrection power every day. We have 24-hour access to the spirit that raised Jesus from the grave. That's what we get. Thirdly, Jesus' confidence. We get to sit with Jesus. We get Jesus' power, and we get the confidence of Jesus. We died with Christ, and we rise with Christ— and we don't live in fear anymore. We went to a, a funeral service, a memorial service for Lauren's uncle this week on Tuesday, Uncle Ernie. And as we th- sat through that service, it was really amazing. It was an incredible life. And all four of his children got up and gave tributes to this incredible man, to how positive he was, how he would think they would break something and he'd laugh. And he would just, you know, he was just such a positive person who lived by his principles He followed God his entire life. And then, after the four tributes of the four children, all four grandkids got up and they gave tributes to what an impact he'd had in their life. And as I sat there, I thought, man, this is how I want to go. This is how I'd want it to be. He wrote in his, uh, in the, in the, what's it called? The obituary or the pamphlet thing that you get. He'd written because he knew he was going to die. He had cancer. And so he was, he prepared And this is what he wrote in it. He said, I'm of two minds as I go toward my death. He said, On the one hand, I'm sad to leave behind my wife and my family, to leave them in loss and grief. But on the other hand, I'm excited. I'm excited to go and experience that which I've believed my whole life, that which I've waited for and longed for. And I thought, That is an incredible way to go into death. Excited. Wow. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And my question for you is, what are you afraid of? What's scaring you? What do you feel fear about? Death? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of sin? Are you afraid of condemnation or shame or embarrassment? You're going to be embarrassed. What's your fear? Is it suffering or pain? What's the fear? We died and the worst has already happened. Our sin and our shame and our brokenness and our failure was crucified with Jesus. And now our life is hidden with Jesus. That's the picture. And we put our eggs in that basket. That's where I put all of my trust. I put everything in that. And I'm trusting that at the end, Jesus will be there to meet me. I live in the confidence of him who died. So in conclusion, because Jesus rose, we can experience all of God. We can be filled to the fullness of God, because Jesus was filled to the fullness of God and He offers His Spirit to live in us. We're filled with His authority and His fullness to go and live as He calls us to live, proclaiming His kingdom on earth. And we're marked by the death of Jesus, marked in baptism, is the picture, and awakened to new life. Thirdly, we're fully alive. His resurrection means we're fully alive, seated with Him, living in power. Confident, not in fear, but in confidence. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you uh, for your resurrection life. I thank you that it, it changes everything. And it doesn't just change everything at the end when I die and I walk into meeting you in glory. And it doesn't just change everything at the place where you died and the place where you rose. It changes everything in between. And God, I ask that this morning that we would come to a place of trusting and believing that your resurrection changes things. That every heart that's longing for fullness would experience a measure of your fullness. That every heart that's longing to know that they belong to you, to be marked by you, Lord, that you would mark us with your death and your resurrection. We would be transformed. And Jesus, for those who struggle in their life with fear or with uh, experiencing what does this mean, what does this look like for me, that you would come in power, Lord, that we would see you move. We would sit in confidence with you. We would move in power in your kingdom here on earth. Thank you, Lord. Amen.